Well, good morning. My name is Dave, and I'm the senior pastor at the church. So if you're new and you've been here the last couple of weeks, I haven't seen you because I've been out of town. Um, so I want to say it's glad, I'm glad to be back. Um, so I want to thank specifically the guys that filled in preaching the last couple of weeks. Jim Wilson, one of the assistant pastors at the church here, filled in a couple of weeks ago, and I got to listen to the recording. He did a great job on Psalm 78, um, and I, I laughed a little bit because I gave him one of the hardest ones because it was like, 800 verses or something. So anyway, sorry about that, but he did a great job. Um, and then last week, an old friend of mine, Jason Johnson, spoke on adoption. He did a fantastic job. Um, actually, I've heard so many good things. I'll probably not invite him back, you know, because I feel a little threatened. So um, actually, I'm just kidding. I would invite him back, but he did a great job. And uh, we're back in the Psalms, Psalm 88. The Psalm series we've been going through is called Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. And what we've been learning in the Psalms is how we can be real with God in our Worship and in our prayer and in our small group activity as, as uh, believers fellowshipping together. And we've seen that modeled in the Psalms really well. Um, so we're going to be on page 494 in the Black Bibles, which is Psalm 88. Um, and while you're turning there, I also wanted to mention a couple of other things as well. We were in Guatemala for, I guess, about eight days. And it went really well. And I want to thank you for partnering with us. I know that you guys were praying for us. I know many of you partnered with us financially to enable us to go there. Uh, we went and we got to minister alongside of sister churches there in Guatemala, where they kind of uh, set up the work projects for us. And we built houses for widows and latrines for people that didn't have any sanitation and built stoves for people that burn open fires on their floor. Um, we got to do children's ministry clubs there with one of the churches every day and then with other churches where we rotated. I um, got to share the gospel with a lot of people, saw a lot of people respond in faith to the gospel, um, got to train some leaders uh, with the churches there. It was just, it was a fantastic time. So I want to thank you because I know uh, it was you. It was not just us doing the work there, but you sent us. We were your emissaries, uh, your ambassadors. So we, we just thank you for sending us. Um, I also want to thank publicly, uh, Stephen Watson, one of our assistant pastors here at the church that basically uh, organized the entire trip and ran the whole thing. That was awesome for me. I didn't have to be in charge, right? I just got to be a dude. It was really great. Um, I messed things up a couple of times when, you know, I didn't see him and I thought, oh no, I guess I'm in charge. And, you know, I messed up his plan. But for the most part, I let him run things and we, he did a great job. Carol Harris, who also organized things for the trip, um, Ed Jugajinski organized a lot of the tools and work project stuff for us. So I just want to thank those three people for all the, just the heavy lifting they did to make the, the trip happen, but especially thank you for your prayers and your support for that trip. I also want to um, tell you I learned some more Spanish while I was there. I've got a phrase for you. Um, Yo soy un hombre amigable, pero mi barba es muy peligrosa. Anybody, anybody tracking with me there? Okay, some of you got that. All right. You'll have to Google Translate that later. Also want to remind you that we are getting close to Easter. We're about a month out from Easter now. Um, uh, right before we left, I posted on our web places, on the interwebs, uh, a little blog about some ways that we could prepare for Easter, praying for your friends, uh, sharing the hope that we have in Jesus with other people, fasting. And just want to remind you of that. If you haven't seen that, you can go to our uh, blog and our go on the city and all those places. It'll be there somewhere in space. So go read that. Uh, but just want to encourage you to take the time uh, to pray, uh, just preparing your own heart, but also praying for your neighbors and your friends, maybe that don't know Jesus. Easter is a time when people expect to go to church. 
Uh, so a lot of people that might not go to church uh, any other time are often open and excited to try church out on Easter. So I want to encourage you to consider that with your neighbors, with your friends, inviting them, talking to them about the faith that you have in Christ. So now we're going to look at Psalm 88. And I, I want to give you a quote about Psalm 88. If you're new with us, you're in for a special treat um, in Psalm 88. Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators, says this about Psalm 88. It is the absolute saddest chapter in the entire book of Psalms. All right, you excited? You glad to be here this morning? Welcome. Good morning. We're glad to have you with us today. Um, so I'm titling it Living Death. Living Death. The saddest chapter, maybe in the Bible, definitely the saddest chapter in the Psalms. Possibly it's in the running for the saddest chapter in the Bible. Um, I joke a little bit, but I also know that some of you, um, you were appointed to be here. Like, this is, God has set this up for you. You might be in a really sad place right now, and this might be exactly what you need to hear. So we're going to read this together and see what God has in store for us. Psalm 88. Page 494 in the Black Bibles there nearby. We give a little bit of description. You know, we always or, or often have these little superscriptions at the top. It says a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, who often did more cheery songs than this. It says to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonoth, a maskil of Heman the Ezraite. Excuse me. So He-Man wrote this song. <laughs> Verse 1. This is a different guy, but same name. Verse 1 says, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon is a word of, uh, that means destruction. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. He ends here with my companions have become darkness. In the Hebrew text, darkness is the last word of the psalm, darkness. I think I kind of prefer the translation of the NIV that says, darkness is my only friend. Many of you may feel that way this morning. You might be in that place. Uh, as I said before, I want you to see that the author of the Psalms, that the Bible, that, that God himself 
uh, is inviting you to, to know that, that this feeling is the, a normal feeling sometimes to have, that this is a safe place and that you can express those kind of feelings to God. I want to let you know that, and I'm going to pray and ask God to, to teach us this morning. God, we thank you. We thank you for giving us your life, and we thank you for your word that helps us to see sometimes that, that we're not always in a happy mood. Things aren't always up. God, as hard as this might be to, to hear and to, to speak, we pray that you would be with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I saw, uh, I think it was a TV special. It was some sort of show many years ago, 20, 20 30 years ago. I saw this story that was uh, on, on TV. I think it was like a made-for-TV movie or something. And it was about this lady trying to escape from prison. She was in a really big prison. The prison was so large that there was an actual undertaker that uh, processed bodies in a morgue and took them out and buried them, right? And so somehow she had negotiated with this undertaker a deal to help her escape from the prison. I can't remember now what it was. She had to offer him maybe some money or something. Uh, but somehow he agreed to help her. And they had this thing worked out that when the bell rang for someone to die, uh, that uh, after he put the body in the coffin, she would come in at just the right time uh, in the night and lay down on top of that body and he would seal the coffin. And uh, then when she got to the outside of the prison, she could be free. And so uh, she heard the bell. She went in the dark into the morgue, uh, took the lid off the coffin, climbed in to the coffin and kind of pulled the lid back over. Um, later on the next day, she heard the noise of people taking the coffin outside. There was some traveling, you know, there was other noise. And she realized, okay, now I've made it to the outside. Now uh, I'm outside the prison. I'm just waiting now for the undertaker to take the lid off the coffin, which was fastened somehow from the outside. She waited for a long time, and she didn't hear him opening the coffin. She started to hear other noise as if the coffin was being buried. And she couldn't figure out what was happening. She actually had a lighter with her, and so she lit the lighter and looked around inside the coffin and saw the face of the undertaker uh, was the body laying underneath her. And so she realized at that moment, of course, this is a horror story. She screamed, I think. She realized in that moment that her way of escape had actually become death to her. Sometimes just, just daily life feels like death to us. That's really where the psalm is. We don't know exactly what the situation of the psalmist was. Uh, we know he repeatedly goes back to Sheol, which is the Hebrew word for the, the place of the dead. Um, he uses words like the grave the pit, um, death, Abaddon, which means destruction. So he comes back to this again and again, trying to describe his life as, as a living death. And I, I don't know what you're dealing with right now, but I know many of us have been there and we felt the way that this psalmist feels, that, that we are struggling day to day trying to live through what seems like death, everything being destroyed. And what I want you to understand is that this uh, chapter starts with verse 1 where he says, O Lord, the God of my salvation, he's crying out to God as his only means of escape. And so that's, that's the one glimmer of hope, really, that we see in this psalm. This is a psalm that 
just again and again talks about death and destruction and the pit. And, and as I said, Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators, he says, this is the most depressing, this is the saddest psalm in the whole book of Psalms. And so we can be left wondering, what, where's faith in this? But it starts with, God, you're, you're my only option. So I'm calling out to you. And I want you to connect that with the picture of this woman trying to escape in a coffin. And I want you to understand that all the other alternatives that we're tempted to run to are just going to become coffins for us. If, if you're thinking scrapping uh, your marriage and starting over again with a new relationship is going to fix the problems in your life, it's just going to become another coffin to you. If you're thinking that the bottle is going to solve all your problems, just numbing your pain, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's escaping even into just uh, fantasy and movies and books or even Facebook. If, if you think escaping is going to make your life better, it's only going to, in the end, enslave you and become a coffin to you. Again and again, Scripture paints the picture of these alternative saviors that we run to become prisons for us. They enclose us. And the very things that we thought were going to give us life become death to us. And so I want you to see that in the midst of this depressing psalm that is just about death, 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 death. He starts out saying, God, you're the God of salvation. You're my only hope. And I want you to see that. I want you to continue to connect those dots. The, the first thing that we see in the first few verses is that this death, this experience of pain is worth crying about. Death is worth crying about. We, we live in a culture that's taught us to not complain, to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, to do our own thing. We don't want to be seen as weak. We don't want to be seen as stumbling uh, or like we don't have it together. And so we stuff it. But the scripture continually encourages us, yes, be strong, yes, be responsible, yes, carry your own weight, but cry out to God when you're in trouble. Cry out to your friends for help when you need help. To be honest about your pain and your struggles. That's not sub-spiritual. As a matter of fact, I would argue that it's really uh, the essence of spirituality to admit our weakness and our brokenness. That's why in every service, even though it's not as uh, fun and exciting, we, we stop and pause and confess our sin. God, we're broken. We need you. We need your help. We do that because we feel like that's important. That shapes our souls. The reality is, yes, we're broken, and we should cry out about it. We often think that if we cry out, we're going to be seen as a baby. Here's a picture of a baby crying in the bathtub. <coughs> None of us wants to look like a crybaby, Right? I mean, some of you might. Oh, I want to be a crybaby. Is that some of you? But most of us don't. Most of us want to look strong. I mean, we have a culture that's founded on that. I'd say that's actually one of the strengths of our culture. One of the things I love about our culture, it's a, it's a culture that's really founded on rugged individualism and responsibility and a strong work ethic and freedom. Those are all good. I'm not discounting those things. Those are good things. But every strength in a culture has a weakness. And the weakness of that strength is that sometimes we feel like we can never admit our weakness. We can never cry out. We just have to stuff it. We just have to deny it. We just have to act like it's not there. We just have to try to save ourselves, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The Reformation talked about the solas, which is the Latin word for alone, like sola fide, which is faith alone, and sola gratia, grace alone, and solus Christus, Christ alone. And I had a professor that said, sometimes we're more devoted to sola bootstrapsa, which he meant 
I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, my bootstraps alone. And what the psalmist models here for us is crying out to God, God, you're the God of my salvation. So look again at verse 1. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. He labels it very clearly. The rest of the psalm is going to be depressing. The rest of the psalm is going to be painful. But he's starting out and he's saying, you are the God of my salvation. None of these other things are going to save me. They're all going to end up being coffins in the end. But you, God, are the God of my salvation. So I'm crying out to you day and night. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. Again, Sheol is that place of the dead. It's this murky, shadowy place of the dead. In the Old Testament, we didn't have as clear of a teaching as we do in the New Testament about life after death. And they had more of a phenomenological view. Uh, phenomenological in the sense of uh, phenomena is right, like the stuff we see. That's kind of a scientific term. And so if you're a black and white person and you call it like you see it, have anybody here that this morning? I'm going to call it like I see it person. Raise your hand. You can, I mean, okay, some of you here, right? You're just like, that's the way it is. That's what I see. I'm just going to say it, right? Some of you are that way. Some of us are more interpretive. I'm like, well, what's the true meaning behind that? You know, and, but some of you are just like, that's what it is. That, that's really the way the Hebrew Bible talks about death. Death, you're dead. You're in the grave. You're rotting in the ground. You're not living anymore. That's it, right? And that's the way the Old Testament talks about death. Now on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about resurrection and there are hints of the resurrection. There is some talk of the resurrection in the Old Testament and we'll unpack that on Easter. But for the most part, they just talk about it like you see it. Uh, I was alive and now I'm dead. And he's talking about this again and again. God, I'm slipping into the grave. My life draws near to Sheol. Verse 4, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Women, you may not... Uh, feel the full impact of that, but that's a horror for a man to say, I have no strength. Well, I might as well not even be alive then, right? It says in verse 5, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He's talking about just the feeling of worthlessness, a feeling like, God, you're nowhere involved in my life. Nothing's happening. There's no life here. It's only death, a living death. And what he models for us is that it's worth crying out about. It's worth calling to God and saying, God, this is is painful. This is hard. I don't know if I can keep doing this anymore. My my challenge for you this morning is if you're in the middle of that place where you, you feel like it's nothing but death and pain and uselessness and your strength is all dried up, are you still crying out to God or have you given up? sometimes we give up because it's easier to not ask. If you don't feel like you're going to be answered, have you ever been that way? Maybe, maybe in a friendship, maybe we'll take it out of the context of prayer. We'll just say if you have a relationship with someone you love and you really wish that they would respond in a certain way, and you've asked and you've asked and you've asked and they don't, and you just say, I don't think I, I can't ask anymore. It hurts too bad to ask. Well, sometimes that happens with God. I don't, I don't want to ask him anymore because I don't know that he's going to deliver. I don't know that he really cares. What the Psalms models to us is that we continue to cry out to him. We continue to ask. It's worth crying about. It's worth crying out to him. Death is painful. And it's not the end of the story. The psalmist understands that. Death is not the way things are supposed to be. That's clear in Genesis. Death is not the way things are supposed to be. Is that where we live now? Yes, we live in a world of death. But it's not the end. God has a plan beyond that. 
And so when we're facing death, when we're facing rot, when we're facing cancer, when we're facing dissolved relationships, divorce, when we're facing depression, when we're facing brokenness, it's okay to call out to God and say, God, will you mend this? God, will you pull me out of this? God, will you help me? This hurts. God, I don't like this. I don't want to stay here. And that's what the psalmist is modeling for us, crying out to God. A great example in the Bible of of this kind of prayer is Jesus facing death on the cross. says, God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, rescue me from this because this is a horror. And he gives us a model of prayer. And he says, not my will, but your will be done. He's still acknowledging, God, I, I trust you. You're the God of salvation. You know what you're doing, but God, please save me. Please save me out of this. I don't want to do this. It's okay to pray that way. You don't have to have your theology stop you and go, well, God's in control of all things and he knows what he's doing, so I just, I'm not going to say anything. He's, he's fine. He's got it, right? He's God. No, we, we cry out to him. We call out to him. We say, God, help me. God, save me. Not my will, but your will be done. Lord, I trust you. I trust ultimately that you're in charge, that you're going to make things right, but this hurts. This is painful. God, help me. It's okay to pray honest prayers with God. If nothing else, I hope you see that in the psalm. I think we've seen that as a theme throughout the psalms, but, but please see it here. He's crying out to God in the midst of his pain and depression and brokenness. The next thing that we see gets a little more painful. Um, death gets personal, I would say. Look at verses 6 through 12. Death gets personal um, in the sense of it's one thing to talk about in the abstract, but if you have a relationship with God, it hurts, right? This is like a broken heart. This is not just an abstract principle. He's not just a theology or a philosophy. He's a person. And he he breaks our hearts sometimes. And so we're talking to him personally. We're appealing to him personally. God, what's going on? Look at this in verse 6. It says, You have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me, You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. So so hear this. He's saying again and again, you did this, God. You're in charge, God. You're the one that runs the universe. So God, why? Why is this happening? Why are you doing this to me, God? Now, some of you have been taught a theology that says, uh, since God's not the author of evil, anything bad that happens, God can't have anything to do with it, right? Like there's this boundary and God's like, whoop, sorry, I'm not, in, I'm not involved. And, and I think that's a little too simplistic. God is, God is sovereign over all things. God is not the author of evil, but God is sovereign over all things. God used the greatest evil ever perpetrated in the history of the world for our salvation. And he endured it himself. And the scripture paints the picture that it's possible that God can work good through the evil that we endure. Now, we have to be careful. We, we don't want to curse God, say, God, you're the author of evil. We don't want to overstep those boundaries. So what are those biblical boundaries? I think a couple of verses that are helpful are James and in 1 John and uh, James 1.13. It says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. So the idea here is that God's not the one trying to get you to do evil, right? Evil is when we choose to not love God and not love other people. God doesn't try to get us to do that. 
Um, and so here in James 1.13, he's saying, God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Well, if you're a really black and white person, that's kind of a hard verse because there's other verses where like God does tempt Abraham and they use the same word in other scriptures. And so you have to use the context here to understand what he's saying. He's saying, in context, God might test someone, he might try someone, he might tempt someone, but he tempts them uh, towards success, right? So like with Abraham, he's testing him saying, Abraham, here's here's an invitation to trust me. Abraham, here's an invitation to trust me. Here's an opportunity. But if you're going through hard times and you choose evil, that's the situation James is talking about here. He's saying, you can't say God did that. That was you. That was me. Sin, evil, it comes from me. It comes from you. It comes from us. It doesn't come from God. So the scripture's clear about that. James 1, in 1, he goes on and he talks about it in more detail. Another great verse is 1 John 1, 5. In 1 John 1, 5, it says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So this psalm that ends in darkness is a contrast for who God really is. God, I'm living in darkness. Please rescue me from this darkness. We know that God is not darkness. God is light. So we've got some boundaries there. We know God doesn't make us do evil. We know God's not the author of evil. We know that um, God is not darkness. God is light. But still, we can wrestle with him and say, God, somehow you're God. You're, You're in control of all things. I was talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago that's dabbling with a kind of theology called openness theology. Um, and the idea of openness theology is that God's just really, really powerful, but he doesn't really control things and he doesn't really know the future. So it, like, it works really hard to limit God so that we don't get in the danger of blaming him for bad stuff, right? And I would say, be careful. Don't construct a theology to defend God. Just, just read the Bible and, and try to listen to what it says. And the Bible says, somehow God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over all things and he's still just and good. Somehow those two things go together. And I've not found a philosophy in the world that can make sense of it any better than God came to save us in the form of Jesus Christ. That's really the only philosophy that that even comes close. We all still have the problem of why, God, why? When you're hurting, you still have the problem of why. Picking a better philosophy doesn't solve the, the pain. It still hurts. But in Christianity, we understand that God met us in our pain, that he pursued us, that he's rescuing us, that there's a future without pain that we're headed towards. So we have this picture here of I can't escape. You've shut me in. You've made, my, uh, you've made me a horror to my friends. My eyes grow dim through sorrow. Every day I call to you, I spread out my hands to you. In verse 10, he says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon, the place of destruction? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? So as I said, we have this Hebrew concept of death is the end. So I have a picture here of a cemetery, and I would say what the author is saying is, how can that be a a chorus of praise to you, God? How can tombstones be glorifying to you, God? How can I talk about how good you are if if I'm rotting underground? That's what the psalmist is asking. God, how how can that work? Show it to me. I I don't understand. Why are you crushing me? Why are you killing me? Why, are, why, am I in the, why am I slipping into the grave? How can I praise you? And so in this section, death gets personal and it, it pushes us. The, the struggle, the this hurts so bad, pushes us to be really honest with God. 
So we see two examples of this just brutal honesty of this just personal crying out to God here in the text that I think are applications for us. One is, is the crying out part of God. Why are you doing this to me? It's okay to ask that. It's okay to ask that. You haven't betrayed God by asking that. Don't curse him. Don't say, God, you're the author of evil, but just say, why are you doing this to me? God, why is this happening? I think we have a model here of it's okay to ask that. It's okay to assume that God is in charge of all things, even in the midst of our pain. So we can cry out that way to him. And it's also a good example we have here is, is trying to negotiate with God. We see that throughout scripture. When godly men pray, they say, God, won't, won't it give more honor to your name if you let me live, right? Wouldn't that glorify you, God? Jesus talks about this way. He says we should pray according to his will. So trying to align ourselves with God and say, God, help me to honor you. Help my life to be a testimony to you. And there's a good chance here that Heman, the Ezraite, never knew what a great testimony his life was to God. That's a possibility for us too, right? Job, Job never got the rest of the story. I mean, God finally talked to Job in the end, but Job never got the backstory, right? We get this whole book that tells us the story about the suffering man, Job. God just revealed himself to Job. He didn't say, oh, well, I was having this conversation with Satan and this happened and that happened. No, that's in the book, right? We get to see that, but Job wasn't told that. And I like to think somehow in heaven, you know, we'll know all that stuff. But the point is in our lifetime, we may not see the whole story. Like the psalmist, he may, he may never have seen it. He may have slipped into the grave not seeing how God was going to use his life for glory. I want you to see that God can still do great things in your life, even if you don't see it today. Even if you don't see it today. Faith is not the life that we look forward to after death, right? Faith is not the healing. Faith is calling out to God in the midst of the death that we're struggling with right now. That's what faith is. It's calling out to him now as we struggle and as we suffer. And we have a model of prayer here. But the last thing that I want us to see is that death seems to have the last word. And this psalm, death seems to have the last word. As I said, in a phenomenological sense, in a this is what we see kind of sense, death seems to be the end. Seems to be the end of the world we know. Look at verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Let's pause there for just a minute. Um, This isn't just uh, a moody poet, right? You know, artists can be kind of moody. I like to tease Chris, our worship leader, about it sometimes. You know, sometimes artists can be, you know, it's just part of the artistic temperament, a little melancholy. Have y'all ever noticed that before? Um, maybe you never, you didn't listen to The Cure in high school like I did. But sometimes they can be dark and brooding. But, but this guy, this is not just a mood, right? This is just not, not just a personality. He says in verse 15, afflicted and close to death, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. This is a lifelong battle. This is like a child who was sick from childhood and is now an adult. This is like someone that's been depressed, not just for a while, but their whole life. This is like someone who's not just known the little brokenness and the little pain, but that's, that's been it for years and years, and they've been calling out to God. I want you to see how, how deep and how hard this is. 
as the psalmist describes this pain that he's going through. The scripture tells us that that Jesus suffered in every way that we have temptation, yet without sin. He's been tried, he's been tested in every way that we have. Scripture says Jesus understands. I'd argue that this author understands too. A lot of you have been through really hard stuff, and when you go through hard stuff, it's easy uh, to become cynical and to think, yeah, you don't, you don't know what I've been through. Yeah, you don't understand. You haven't walked where I've walked. This guy has. I want you to see that. I mean, for years, pain, struggle, suffering. You can't come to the Bible and say, God doesn't understand. You can't come to the Bible and say, the authors of this book don't get it. They do. They understand. I may not have have suffered as much as you have, but I think this guy has, and I think Jesus has. And so I want you to understand that in our pain, there is someone that understands. There's someone that gets it. He goes on and he says in verse 16, your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. As I said before, the NIV says, darkness is my only friend. Everybody else has abandoned me. All I've got now is darkness. The Hebrew text, the ESV, wants to end here the way the Hebrew does with darkness. My companions have become darkness. So I searched long and hard on Google Images to come up with this picture for you. Darkness. Just a, just a black slide. Darkness. That's where, that's where this ends. If you feel like there is no happy ending in your life, the Bible actually validates that feeling. You might feel that way. You might feel like there's, there's no happy ending. The Bible meets you there. If you feel like you have no friends, the Bible also validates that feeling. Others have felt that way. Others have been there. Jesus certainly has. And if you feel like the story's not ending well, that's where the psalm ends. Darkness. Darkness. There doesn't seem to be an answer. Let me pray for us. God, we, we ask you for help. It's unsettling for there not to not be a resolution, for there to not be a happy ending. God, we thank you that you validate our experience, but we still cry out to you for salvation. God, we recognize this morning that the other uh, routes of escape, the other roads, the other bridges, the other ladders that we construct in the end become coffins. And so, God, we acknowledge that you alone are our only hope. So, God, when darkness is our only friend, when darkness is all we see, we ask that you would save us. We cry out to you. We thank you that you showed us that you are a saving God through the life and death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I, uh, I, wanted, I really wanted to try to end where the psalm ends. And again, I want to restate that if, if that's what you feel like right now, if, if you feel like darkness is the end, this psalm affirms that. But it's rare. 
think I've said before, most of the Psalms have a happy ending. And this book, this book has a happy ending. So I want you to think back to the picture I painted at the beginning of the story of the woman thinking that this means of escape would rescue her from the prison, but in the end it became her death. And she was buried with this man to her horror. The, the scripture actually says that's, that's kind of what's happened to us. Not just that we've been buried in our sins, that they've become a coffin and a prison to us, but that Jesus, Jesus is our way of escape. Colossians 2 says it this way, that we were buried with him in baptism. What it's saying, Colossians 2 says that we've climbed in the coffin with Jesus. That we have no other options. And so we climb in the coffin with Jesus by faith, and when we turn on the lighter, he's, he's alive. Because the scripture says that Jesus conquered death. So the scripture meets us where we are and says, yes, death is all we know. That's the world we live in. And that seems to be the end. And the scripture says, Jesus beat death for us. He didn't stay in the grave. He rose from the dead. He's our only hope. God bless you.